Again, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, we'll do uh, Songs of Thankfulness and Praise, stanzas 1, 3, and 5. And if you um, aren't familiar with this hymn, if you weren't here last week, it's the same tune as Come Ye Thankful People Come. (laughs) Songs of thankfulness and praise, Jesus Lord, to Thee we praise, manifested by the star. To the sages from afar, branch of royal David's stem, in thy birth at Bethlehem, anthems be to thee addressed, God in man made manifest. Stanza three. Manifest in making whole, palsied limbs and fainting soul, manifest in valiant fight, quelling all the devil's might, manifest in gracious will, ever bringing good from hell, anthems be to thee addressed, God in man made manifest. Grant us grace to see thee, Lord, present in thy holy word. Grace to imitate thee now, and be pure as pure art thou that we might become like thee at thy great epiphany and may praise thee ever bless god in man made manifest all right let's uh, go on to christian questions and their answers uh questions 16 and 17. Why should we remember and proclaim his death? First, so that we may learn to believe that no creature could make satisfaction for our sins. Only Christ, true God, and man could do that. Second, so we may learn to be horrified by our sins and to regard them as very serious. Third, so we may find joy and comfort in Christ alone and through faith in him be saved. What motivated Christ to die and make full payment for your sins? His great love for his Father and for me and other sinners. As it is written in John 14, Romans 5, Galatians 2, and Ephesians 5. We'll go on to the uh, Bible memory work. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20 Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And Luther's morning prayer. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, 
And I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul in all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right. Um, Eric, are you doing Sunday school today? Yes. Okay. Rebecca, do you want to show them the new room and all that? All right. All right. So, um, for the uh, hymnody portion of Bible study today, um, last week I think I shucked off uh, stanza five as kind of just a doxological stanza in songs of thankfulness and praise. But while we were singing it this morning, um, I realized it's not just a doxological stanza. In fact, it's um, not really a Trinitarian stanza. Even um, it doesn't have the little triangle right to stand for it. It's um, it's more of a concluding stanza to the hymn. And it actually has some beautiful theology there that I want to highlight um, since we sang the odd stanzas this morning. And so I'll talk about one of those. Um, grant us grace to see thee, Lord, present in thy holy word, grace to imitate thee now and be pure as pure art thou, that we might become like thee at thy great epiphany, and may praise thee ever blessed, God and man made manifest. So there's a lot going on here. Um, if you remember from last week when we talked about this hymn, uh, this is really a great overall epiphany hymn in that it highlights a lot of the different Bible narratives that um, come up during the season of Epiphany, which is the season of the revealing of Jesus Christ, who Jesus is, right? So Christ is born as this little baby in, in, at Christmas, and uh, we hope for him coming during Advent. But then during Epiphany, we get to see, okay, really, who is he? What did he come to do um, in great detail? So that starts with the wise men proclaiming him king, bringing them their gifts, and then uh, today we'll get the baptism at the Jordan, which tells us a lot about who Jesus is, and so on and so forth. Um, and now uh, one, one of the questions about that is, okay, what does that mean for you, right? What, is, what does it mean that Jesus is who he is for your practical life as a Christian? And uh, this stanza is kind of great at getting to that. So, um, first of all, grant us grace to see thee, Lord, present in thy holy word. So, first of all, we want to see Jesus for who he is in his word. Uh, we want to see him for what he has done for us, what he's doing for us in his word. So, in his baptism, right, it's not just a story about a guy being baptized, but uh, we're going to talk about this today in the sermon. It's uh, the Son of God taking on our sin and giving us his righteousness. Um, or when he receives the wise men's gifts, uh, he truly is our king, right, uh, even now. So um, grant us grace to see thee, Lord, present in thy holy word. And then th this next uh, couple lines here are really great. Grace to imitate thee now. And be pure as pure art thou, that we might become like thee at thy great epiphany. So imitation is actually something that comes up a lot in the New Testament, especially. So, uh, Paul says this, I think, four times, uh, three or four times, that we should, and he, he says it multiple ways. Sometimes he says, imitate God or imitate Christ. Sometimes Paul says, and this sounds a little egotistical if you take it the wrong way, imitate me as I imitate the Lord. And that has to do with um, really a part of human nature, I think. I'm just going to hold him while I, while I talk here. He's, uh, he's hungry. Anyhow, uh, imitation, while I'm getting a son here, it actually works out well. Imitation has a lot to do with human nature. If you are a son of a father or a daughter of a mother, which all of you are, you know that uh, kids have this uncanny ability to imitate, right? To imitate their parents. And uh, 
there's something about you know being born of a of a of parents that they are like you, right? They look like you, they speak like you, um, they learn from you, and imitation is in some ways really the foundation of learning anything, right? Uh, you see someone else do something and then you imitate it, right? That's how you learn to write. That's how you learn to read. It's kind of how you learn everything, and God calls us in his word to imitate him, right? Because he is our father in heaven, right? So just uh, just like we imitate our earthly parents, we're also called to imitate our heavenly father. And uh, we're called to be like Christ in that way, right? So, um, I, I mean, I it, it's kind of corny, and it, it fell out of uh, popularity sometime during the 2000s, but... People used to wear bracelets, uh, Christians used to wear bracelets that said WWJD, right? <laughs> what would Jesus do? And that's always a good question. Um, I remember some Lutherans would get mad at that because they're like, well, don't forget about the cross. What did Jesus do? What did he do? But um, on the other hand, in the sanctified life, as justified Christians baptized in his name, uh, we can ask the question, what how should we be like Jesus, right? Um, how can we live like Jesus? And this epiphany that that he presents himself to us, right, when we can see Jesus for who he is, when he reveals himself to us, that gives us the ability then to imitate him, right? So to imitate someone, you have to be able to see them. You have to be able to know who they are, Um and whenever Jesus reveals himself to us, we can then go on the task of imitating him. And um, this, this is from 1 John 4, I believe, uh, that on the last day when Jesus comes again. She's in here. <laughs> she said, I'm in the room. She's in here. She didn't see him. So she's wondering, right? She's confused. She'll see him in someone room. He was my uh, show and tell prop. I was talking about sun imitations. Oh, perfect. He's a good one. I was talking about sonship. Um, yeah, from First John four, um, that on the last day when Jesus comes again, we shall know him as he is, because we shall be like him, right? Um, that the Christian life is one of becoming more and more like Jesus. And it's something that we don't always talk about a lot. Um, I think the Eastern Orthodox have kind of ruined this because they talk way too much about becoming like God uh, with their doctrine of theosis. But uh, it is true that we are becoming more and more like Jesus. And um, so I like this line that the great epiphany is when Jesus reveals himself in the flesh on the last day, right? So at thy great epiphany, that we might become like thee. So, um, and praise thee ever blessed, God and man made manifest. So I like how the hymn kind of moves uh, from Jesus' birth and the wise men all the way to the, la- to the, to the last coming. Um, anyway, okay, that's stanza five. Any questions on, on that, on imitation or epiphany stuff? All right, uh, for the catechism and Bible memory work, uh, this is a great question, the, the question 16. So remember this is coming off of the discussion in questions like 13 through 15 that we did last week of what does it mean when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, talking about the Lord's Supper. And last week we talked about how remembrance in the Bible is not just like I remembered where my car keys were or I remembered uh, to turn off the oven before I left the house. Remembrance in the Bible is this participation. Um, It's participating in the past in a real tangible way. And so when we participate in the Lord's Supper, it is a real presence participation Um, in the same way that when the Israelites celebrated Passover, they considered it a real uh, participation in the act of the crossing of the Red Sea. So uh, 
that that's where this discussion is coming from. And so then Luther asked, so why should we? Um, and you remember also that Bible verse that we had last week, First uh, Corinthians 11. Is it 17? Does anyone remember what the Bible memory work is? You're supposed to memorize it. So obviously I should have memorized it as well. I think it's 17. Um, something like that sounds right. But that um, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So again, this active proclamation, this active participation in Jesus' death and resurrection as we uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper. Um, and so with that in mind, Luther asked this question, um, were, why should we then remember and proclaim his death? And notice that all these things uh, have to do with um, actually living out the Christian life, right? So again, this is a real, live, active participation in these things. Um, and he gives three reasons. Uh, first, that we be- learn to believe that no creature could make satisfaction for our sins. Uh, so we realize when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, when we um, see what Christ has done for us in his death and resurrection, that that's nothing we could ever accomplish on our own, right? We are poor sinners. We could not make satisfaction for our sin. Only the perfect Lamb of God uh, could shed his blood for us and give us that. Um, only Christ, true God, and true man could do that. Second, that we would learn to be horrified by our sins. So also when you see Christ's death and resurrection, um, when you see the gift that he gives you in the Lord's Supper, you can also see that it took a death, right? It took a shedding of a lifeblood to um, make propitiation for your sins. And so um, our sins are, are serious. Why don't you go to Sunday school? Yep. And then third, um, we don't want to just leave it on that note of um, being horrified by our sins. But third, that we recognize Christ has given us this free gift. And even though um, we, we are horrified of our sins and even though we recognize the need for forgiveness, we have received that forgiveness. And so we can find uh, comfort and joy in Christ alone um, and through faith in him to be saved. Uh, Luther has this great line, I don't remember where it is, um, that there's a mistake that people make sometimes when thinking about coming to the Lord's Supper. That So on one hand, you do want to be right with your neighbor, right? So Matthew 5, uh, or no, Matthew, yeah, Matthew 5, um, that before you go to the altar, you should uh, make any corrections with your, with your brother. Um, and... And the warnings Paul gives about receiving the supper unworthily in in 1 Corinthians 11, that we want to be careful when we go to the Lord's Supper. Luther says, you don't want to, um, however, fall into the air that some Roman Catholics uh, back in the late medieval times fell into, which is to think, well, I'm just too poor of a sinner. I, I, I am too miserable of a sinner to think that I could ever receive this gift. He says, the Lord's Supper is for sinners only. Um, I think I, that might be a bit of a paraphrase, but that's something along the lines of what, what he said. And um, that is a true thought that you could take it too far and say, I'm too worried about making sure that um, I'm, I'm good enough to go receive the Lord's Supper, right? Uh, that's not what it's for, right? And that closed communion, which we can talk about another time, and I've talked about many times, that's that has to do with something different. That has to do with church fellowship, and it has to do with protecting people's souls. But for the faithful uh, who come to receive the Lord's Supper, it is forgiveness for sins, right? Um, and we shouldn't be worried about if, if we are repentant sinners um, we should not be worried about receiving that gift of forgiveness there at the altar. Um, it is for ultimately for joy and comfort in Christ alone. And uh, then I like in 17 how uh, Luther <laughs> – I like in the Christian questions, answers in general, Luther is just kind of snarky. <laughs> um, so like 
we'll see later on how he says, like, if you don't believe that you're a sinner and that you need this gift, you should just pinch yourself and look at the world around you. Um, but I like how here he just um, he doesn't give like a specific Bible verse. He just gives like four chapters that you can go read. <laughs> so if you don't trust uh, what he's saying here, go read these go four. Go for, go look it up. And, uh, you know, four chapters really isn't that much. But, um, you know, he could just point to one verse or something. But instead he points to four different chapters. You can go look at it. And that's where our Bible verse comes from is one of those chapters, Galatians 2. Um, and I love that verse. That verse has a – it's really easy to memorize. It has a good flow to it, right? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Um, the repetition of the word live and life there, it's very poetic. So, um, Any questions on, on any of that? All right, uh, let's move on then to the Bible history that we're, we're still on here, that we're picking back up. So we're, we've been on this for a couple weeks. We're going to finish up now. Uh, the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat. Um, and Jehoshaphat is one of the few good kings. Um, we're kind of looking in Second uh, Chronicles 20 is the main place we're looking at. And we spent a lot of time the last two weeks on this prayer that Jehoshaphat prays. And the reason that I want to do that and wanted to do that is because... I think that um, Jehoshaphat is just this great uh, overlooked character often in the Bible where he is an example of a good Christian leader, a good Christian king. And that should inform, I think, not just, oh, here's here's a good Christian king way back then that has nothing to do with us now. But what we should look for in leadership, right, um, both in our church for sure, but also in our in our land, in our country, right? Um, Jehoshaphat is not a priest. He's not a prophet. He's a king. He's the king of a country, Israel, Judah. And um, the things that he does, like call for national prayer, um, are good Christian things that good Christian leaders should should do. Um, we have this idea in America of the separation of church and state, which um, is, I think, historically, if you look at it historically, is grossly misunderstood today. Um, separation of church and state originally was, first of all, to protect the church uh, from the state, not the other way around. <laughs> Um, and second of all, really had to do with like what version of Protestant you could be. <laughs> like the, when, when, when people talk about freedom of religion um, in America, in the you know original 13 colonies, when that phrase came up, and they were they were talking about what kind of Christian you were, not if you could be you know Muslim or Christian or what Buddhist or whatever. Um, and the I think like 10 of the 13 colonies had official religions and they were all Christian, right? I mean, they were all different forms of Protestantism, basically. So uh, I think we, we've developed historically in a way that's not actually true to the roots. But my point in all that is that um, even America from, from its inception uh, was fine with leaders being openly Christian, and acting in Christian ways, uh, so it's really not that different than than Judah per, per se, in that sense. Um, and so we have this good example of what a Christian leader might do, like calling for national prayer and, and um, this prayer that we. This prayer that we looked at um, last last week, 
being two is difficult, so <laughs> we understand. Um, so that's why we've kind of been looking at Jeho- Jehoshaphat in, in general. Um, and last week we left off on this verse that whenever Jehoshaphat did call for national prayer, verse 13 in Second Chronicles 20, now all Judah with their little ones, their wives, and their children stood before the Lord. And so notice there he distinguishes little ones, so babies, and little children, uh, children. So um, I, when I was talking about that, we were talking about the importance of uh, the little kids, even the babies, um, standing before the Lord in worship and prayer, that this is uh, for them as much as it is for the adults. And um, I gave the example of basically every kid that's ever been in this church since I've been here um, has gone home and played church fairly accurately. <laughs> um, that they this is something that they pick up on, they love to do. They that worship is something that you grow up into, not grow out of. And uh, to grow up into it, you have to be there, right? So the kids learn the pattern, even if they don't cognitively know everything that's going on. They learn the pattern of at the beginning of the service, the pastor and elder and acolyte march forward with with Jesus, right? And at the end, they march out with Jesus. And this is an important thing because parades are important things, and this is basically a parade of Jesus, right? Um, we uh, they learn the patterns of sitting up and standing down. They learn the patterns of um, when you speak and when you don't speak. And uh, they learn the patterns of when you sit still and listen. And so um, it's, I think it's interesting that um, when Judah is all together for worship, uh, that the author of Chronicles actually points this out, that everyone was there, including the babies and children, right? And the wives and, and, and everyone. Um, all right, so uh, that's what we left off, off, off last week. And then um, what happens next is that there's a prophet. So remember our three needs for a good Christian king is uh, worship, which that's what's already going on here. Uh, Prayer, that's what's already going on here. And then word, right? The word of the prophets. Um, And now we're going to get that as well. So Jehaziel... Uh, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaniah, the son of uh, Jael, uh, the son of Madaniah, a Levite, the son of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. Okay, so this is the prophet that came and um, gives his lineage. I I kind of want to go on a tangent about the importance of lineage now, but I think I'll skip that. So. If you want to know about why I think it's important that it, it actually says, like, son of, son of, son of, that's not just something to gloss over. You can ask me later. Okay, but uh, so he he says out, listen, all you Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, and you, King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord, do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude. So you remember the what's going on here, right? There's a huge army coming to attack them. On the eastern front, they're already across the border. Um, there's, and Jehoshaphat's prayer was basically, "We don't, we can't do anything. Only you can, God. Only you can do something." Um, and I love this line: "Do not be afraid or dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours; it's God's." <laughs> um, God is in control, right? So the same thing that Jehoshaphat prays for. Jehaziel uh, prophesies that is true. Go down. Uh, tomorrow go down against them. They will surely come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves. Stand still. And see the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Go out against them, for the Lord is with you. Okay, so his advice, this this often happens in the Bible. 
his advice is insane, right? <laughs> Just go, right? It's a suicide mission. Um, most people would not believe this, right? It's the same thing with like David and Goliath. Um, it sounds insane that this uh, one little tiny kid who has no military experience is going to go out and fight the big giant. Um, it, it just doesn't make any sense, logically. And this, this happens over and over again in the Bible. Right, whenever God commands the Israelites to go up to the Red Sea, what's going to happen, right? <laughs> They're going to be stuck. And actually, that it's that I point that out. Um, this line stands still. Where is that? Uh, Seventeen. You will not need to fight this battle. Position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. I love these verses. Uh, these are some of the most Lutheran verses in the Bible. You can also see a similar thing. I was going to point out at the Red Sea. Um, in Exodus 14, I'll uh, I'll read it for you if you don't want to go there. Exodus uh, 14 verses, I think I wrote it down. Yeah, 13 and 14. Oh, that's Exodus 14 verses 13 and 14. And Moses said to the people. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, shall you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you will hold your peace. And that's exactly what happens, right? So this is Old Testament advice for salvation. Just stand still. <laughs> Don't move. And that teaches us something about the way that God saves, right? Um, and this is a very, very Lutheran thing that we are not saved by anything that we do, right? We can't be. What can, I mean, what can we do? What power do we have against the devil and all his, and all his demons? What power do we have against uh, God's wrath and sin? We can't stop it on our own. It's a it's a force too mighty for us to battle, right? It's the same thing as the Edomites and the um, Midianites and the uh, who are the people of Mount Sire? I forgot what we called them. Um, coming up against Judah, it's the same thing as Pharaoh and his chariots coming up against the Israelites at the Red Sea. It's something that we can't handle on our own, and so to pretend like we could save ourselves. Whenever people, you know, pretend like, oh, I'm a good enough person, God's going to save me, or um, I decided that I want to make a choice for God and I'm going um, to choose to live like a Christian now, it just doesn't make any sense, right? You, you can't do that battle. You're not that, you're not that talented. <laughs> you're, not that, you're not that spiritual. You're not that, you're not that pure. Um, you're plagued with sin just like everyone else. And so how, how can we be saved? Only through the blood of Jesus. Only through God fighting for us with his mighty warrior. Um, and so what do we have to do? We have to stand still and receive it, right? We have to have the word preached to us. We have to have the Holy Spirit work in our hearts. Uh, we have to receive uh, the word and respond in prayer and worship, right? So uh, we, we do stand still to see the salvation of the Lord. Um, and so I love, I love it when the prophets say that. Just stop moving. Just stand still, right? God's going to save you. Um, and what's amazing is that as insane as this advice sounds from a humanistic or logical perspective, um, Jehoshaphat bows his head with his face to the ground, verse 18, and Jerusalem bows their head and they worship the Lord and they stand still and they do it. And it all works out because uh, what what happens is that um, when you keep reading, then the Levites, the children of the Kohathites and the children of uh, Korah, oh, so that's um, 
the, the Levites continue to worship. Okay. And then verse 20, they go out early in the morning. So I want to come back to that. I want to come back to um, verses 18 and 19. But in verse 20, they go and they go out uh, to the wilderness to go out and like they, like they planned, uh, like they were told to. And, um, okay, this is them continuing to sing. Sorry. Uh, I want to get to the point where what, what actually happens. Okay, so verse 22, now when they began to sing and to praise. So verses 18 through, um, sorry, I got, a, I got a little mix up there. Verses 18 through 21, that's them praising the Lord uh, after they received this word from Jehaziel. Then um, when they begin to sing, verse 22, the Lord set ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and, uh, oh, Moabites. I think earlier I said Midianites, uh, Moabites. Ammonites, Moabites, and the people of Mount Sire had come against Judah, and they were defeated. And this is what happened. This is, I just love God's sense of humor here. For the people of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Sire to utterly kill and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Sire, they helped to destroy one another. So these three different armies that are coming to attack Judah, uh, God confuses them and sets ambushes uh, for them where they start to fight against one another and they all kill one another, right? So first of all, they all kill the people of Mount Sire, which is probably the smallest army. And then uh, the Ammonites and the Moabites all kill one another. And so then uh, when Judah came to a place overlooking the wilderness in verse 24, uh, they looked toward the multitude of these armies that were gonna come and destroy them. And they're all just dead. Right? They're all just lying there, uh, dead bodies fallen on the earth. No one had escaped. And so Judah is spared. Right, The Lord fought for them. The Lord did what he said he was going to do. Um, and then, as uh, in addition to that, they get to go and plunder them. So we'll talk about that in a second. But let's go back to verses 18 through 21. where um, So they receive the word, and they get this advice to stand still, which we talked about. And uh, how the Lord saves what? So this is a fancy term, uh, but it's good to know. Mon. I'll just use the noun monergism or monergistically. Um, this is how the Lord saves. Is He saves with in the form of monergism? So mono. Anyone know what the root mono means? One. One. And then you can see in uh, urgism here, uh, the word energy, um, which is power, right? Uh, so we can, we'll just say power, one power. Or in other words, there, I'm going to grab a different marker here. Not uh, that there's only, that there's only one power of salvation, or we could say it this way, salvation goes one direction, right? That uh, God uh, saves us, right? We don't save ourselves and go to God. Uh, it's only, it's not diergism or, yeah, what, however do you want to say that, dualgism. <laughs> um, it's not a dual energy. It's not a two-way street, it's a one-way street, right? It's monergistically. So um, this is, we saw stand still, that's the monergism part of it. But just because it's monergism, just because it's uh, one power, one-way street, um, after God saves us, right, and when we receive that by faith, standing still doesn't exactly mean standing still. So this is kind of a, in some ways, a paradox or a mystery, but um, God saves us all on his own, right? We can't save ourselves. However, we do have a certain participation in that salvation. So one thing to remember here, and I, I'm getting into weeds a little bit on this, but um, this us here, we're not robots, okay? Um, so the... Calvinists will make this mistake 
sometimes, the Reformed, will make this mistake where they'll focus so much on God's power and God's sovereignty and, and, and the monergism involved in salvation, which is all true, that they kind of turn us not into God's creatures who recognize what's happening and who respond accordingly, but they turn us into robots, right? That um, when God saves us, there's when, when we stand still to receive God's salvation, that there's absolutely nothing that we can do of our own, right? That God is basically just controlling us uh, like someone is controlling a robot with a remote control. And that's not true either, right? That would be taking the monergism a little bit too far. Um, sorry, I got a tickle on my nose. Um, so we're not robots. And so I, I, I wanted to point this out because in verses 18 to 21, they do stand still, right? They do receive the salvation monergistically from God. They don't go out and try and solve the problem themselves. They don't try and go out and battle themselves, but they do respond with a real life worship and prayer of God. Um, and so when God comes and saves us, when God comes and brings us his gifts, we are able to respond in worship and prayer. And uh, so the so here you can see, you know, in 1821, Jehoshaphat bows his head. All the people in, in, in Jerusalem bow before the Lord and worship the Lord. They all sing, including all the children. Right. It points out the children again. Um, they're all singing praises to the Lord. And um they, they continue to sing, continue to sing this one song, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. Praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. And this is why I think sometimes um, our Baptist friends get confused whenever they think about salvation. And they say things like, I made a decision to follow Jesus. Because when you come to faith, when you come to a knowledge of uh, Jesus Christ and his salvation, when the Holy Spirit preaches, the, uh, when you hear the preaching of the word and the Holy Spirit works faith in you, and God is coming down to save you, monergistically, it's all his work, you didn't do anything, he put faith in your heart, he preached to you his word, it it can because we are God's creatures and because he does work a real life faith in us, it can feel like we're very much involved in that. Um, and because of that, sometimes it makes it so, uh, you know, this all kind of happens at once, right? So uh, say someone is listening to a sermon and uh, they've been living a pagan life before. They they weren't they weren't a repentant sinner, and they hear the preaching of the the law and the gospel, and it hits them in the heart, and the Holy Spirit is doing something there, and they come to saving faith, right? Well, that can very much from our end of things seem like something where we would say, "Wow, I have come to know Jesus." And I am going to live for him now, right? And um, I want to live my life to Christ. And some people might even use the language then, I made a decision to follow Jesus, right? I chose now that I want to be a, a, a Christian um, because that's how it can feel. Now, biblically, we recognize that's not exactly what happened, that, that decision theology is not exactly what the Bible teaches. But I just wanted to point that out, that we are active, uh, we are an active participant in God's monergistic salvation, if that makes sense. Uh, so we do need to be careful with that. Um, and sometimes I hear Reformed or even other Lutherans uh, get very obsessive of saying, you know, you can't ever say that you had anything to do with your salvation. That's not exactly true, because you were there, right? And God did work on you, and you're a real person, and you're a real creature with a real heart. And so, of course, you did have something to do with it, but you didn't contribute to it, which is a very fine theological line, but it's an important one. And uh, so that – anyway, does anyone have any questions on that? Does that make sense?
Okay. If it doesn't, then you can talk to me later. Um, but there's no hands right now, so I'm assuming it makes sense. I don't know. Okay. Uh, but, but, um, yeah, so they come in and uh, they take the spoil, uh, which is very, you know, standard. Um, and again, you can actually see God's graciousness there. I mean, I, I know it goes against our modern, uh, you know, international politic, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Our, what we would think is, you know, like rude and not rude. Um, to go plunder another country that we defeat. Yeah, but uh, that's just not how it was in the ancient world. Uh, plundering a country that's been defeated, um, that's just what you do, right? <laughs> and, it, and it's a gift of God, right, to, to, the, to Jerusalem, to Judah, that, that they would get this, that they would, they would take the spoil from the defeat, from the enemy. Um, and you can also always, you know, kind of remember that these people throughout the the region of Canaan that the uh, that God commands the Israelites to go and take over, they're, they're not nice people, right? Uh, <laughs> these are the people practicing Canaan worship, worshiping Baal, sacrificing children on their altars, um, so on and so forth. So, all right, um, the choir's headed off, and I'm actually at a good stopping point. So I think I'm just going to end early today. Uh, instead of starting something new. The only thing left at this is that Jehoshaphat dies um, and his son becomes becomes king, uh, which we'll talk about with um, his son, uh, Jehoram, in Second Chronicles 21. Does anyone have any questions on Jehoshaphat or on Judah's kings in general or anything we talked about today? The prophet that Right, yeah. The the prophets speak only by the spirit, right? Um, this is how the prophecy happens is is by the spirit. So um, yeah, and you can also see here, just as kind of a side note, Jehaziel, the prophet, um, when the spirit of the Lord comes upon him, he's one of these prophets that is recorded in the Bible, but he doesn't get his own book, right? So there's actually a lot of prophets around in in the time of uh, Judah and Israel. And there's a school of the prophets. We've talked about that before. Um, it's kind of fun whenever one of these prophets just shows up. And um, but they're not. You know, we remember when we look at like when we look at some of the prophets. If you look on the divided kingdom uh, chart, you know, you get Elijah and Elisha. Well, you know about them. And then Amos, Hosea, Jonah, Micah, Daniel. Like these guys all wrote their own biblical books. You know, which is great. They got. They prophesied and wrote down the prophecy. But um, there are prophets that don't do that. There are prophets um, who prophesy to the kings that aren't and to the people uh, that, that don't get their own book. And the application of that is that today um, I very much think of my office, the office of a pastor, as one following in the office of priest, of course, but also in the office of prophet. Um, and I don't mean that that like, oh, I like have some special inspiration from God that you know he came down and talked to me and told me what to say in the sermon today. But um, when pastors preach the word faithfully, that is a, a prophecy, right? Um, and I think that it's important to note that um, there are prophets in our midst, right? That even though, you know, not every pastor is going to be, you know, famous, right? And everyone's going to know about him. To recognize that the word of the Lord comes to you through men who God sends. That is a prophetic thing. Um, and it's a good thing. So, all right. Uh, any other questions or comments? Yeah, uh, Steve. Another observation is in verse 21 where 
praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. And I've been to, you know, like a, a grief service or whatever. And the only thing you hear that you understand is hallelujah. I think that's what that means. Praise the Lord. Yeah, um, yeah, it, it does. And that is a common refrain throughout the Old Testament. Um, you can read the Psalms um, and you hear that that phrase over and over again, praise the Lord, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. Uh, or sometimes it's translated steadfast love or other ways, but um, that's a very, very common. Is that like Psalm, like one, what Psalm is it that it repeats that every other line? Is that Psalm 130 maybe? Just, if that's not right, I can't remember. Oh, it is not. Um, I'll have to remember which, which psalm that is. But, uh, yeah, that's a very common refrain throughout the Old Testament. So that's obviously one of Israel's songs. And um, it's always beautiful when you get something that is passed down like that. That, um, you know, it's kind of like for us in some ways like the Lord's Prayer. That everyone knows it, right? Even... Um, even people who have severe dementia on their deathbeds, you start to say the Lord's Prayer and they know it, right? It's just so ingrained in their hearts. And so uh, verses like that, prayers like that, um, liturgy like that, I mean, really, that's a piece of liturgy, right? Uh, praise the Lord for his mercy and dears forever. And so it's always, it's always good to have those things. All right, let's end with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your boundless mercy toward us. We praise you that your mercy does endure for us forever. And we pray that you would continue to strengthen us and help us throughout our days and weeks. Send us Christian leaders uh, to reign in our land. We pray that you would bless our worship today in spirit and in truth. We pray this all through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.